Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 6. I'm your host, Jason Hill. And had I a heart, I would feel. Had I eyes, I would see. But as I have only a voice, I scream. And scream. And scream. Welcome back, Hillheads. That's right, I'm gonna make it stick. My God, I will make it stick and be damned the fool who stands before the rising tide. Tonight's story comes from Horror Hill poet Goriat, 
Do you see what I did there? Do you see? Saras Nikita. And you can probably tell by my tone of voice that the fun and games have come to a miserable, contemptuous end. I spit on levity. Do you hear me, Kevin and Jeff? You'll find neither laughter, nor kindness, nor warmth in this house. We are as empty as a moonless night. By the way, you're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your death rot support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other pain, blood, hate, hundreds of other tales from our audio archives of Ah. <laughs> Audio archives dating back to 2012. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click patrons the upper menu to sign up to today. The end of days. To get instant access from your friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, thank you for your support. Thank you. Woo! I got dark in here. I guess it's fitting. Now, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies and nightmares come to life. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. And now, without further ado, from author Saros Nikita, I give you Allison. Allison will live her whole life in Folkston, Georgia, 40 miles from Waycross, and as close to the Oki Finoki as you can get before the ground starts filling your footprints with scab colored water. She will wake each morning to the thickness of the swamp sucked up into the air around her. She will eat dinners of fried fish and balls of corn fried with onions. Twice, she will be hospitalized with blinding migraine headaches that are actually overdoses of aerosol insect repellent, ferried to her bloodstream via a bad habit of biting her nails and chewing the torn skin beneath them. Alison Crenshaw will live to be 19 years old. She will die without losing her virginity or understanding that she is schizophrenic. Up until the very end, Alison will never consider that anybody else's mind might not be exactly like hers. Alison's first episode as her mother came to call them, occurred in late March, when the pines of Folkestone were heavy with white, football-sized cocoons of brown moth larvae. Allison had been five years old, breaking apart acorns in the screened-in porch of her babysitter's house when she smelled a smell that reminded her of the white collar her mother's cat wore to keep fleas away. Then, she looked to the sky and saw that the caterpillars were finally alive in there, 
squirming in and out of view, obscured by the gauzy white stuff they'd spun. Looking at those caterpillars, Allison suddenly felt something in her chest, something bright and hot stirring around. She stood, disoriented, and something bolted through her, knocking her to her knees, a feeling of rage like something she had never felt before. A feeling of disgust and terrible urgency that made her feel like a balloon had grown in her throat, and the only way to make it stop stretching her was to scream out and make it pop. Then she felt something else. Some heavy and alien emotion that most people would describe as homesickness. For the first time, she was feeling things in her chest instead of just thinking them in her head. And she hated the feeling. The thought that the cocoon was like her, that this feeling had suddenly come over her, was only one of hundreds more, teeming and squirming beneath her surface. And the cocoon was only a thick, husk person she had grown around herself. And then, plain as her mother's voice, Allison heard something tell her, Let them out. And she had crawled up into the tree, breathing hard through her mouth like a dog, and tore down three of the cocoons and broke them open and sat on the porch with them pulling out the unborn, still-soft caterpillars and crushing them, one by one, between her small thumb and forefinger, making little brown and yellow piles with their corpses. And when she was finished, she took them inside and put them on the floor in the kitchen before lapsing into such a fit of screaming that her body began to seize, and the babysitter had rushed her to the hospital where she'd been sedated with benzodiazepines. Anne Crenshaw, skeptical of the bland diagnosis that her daughter had suffered an anxiety attack, fleetingly wondered if her Allison might be possessed. But the next day, the girl was back to her old self and seemed to have unremembered anything disturbing about her behavior the previous day. Allison was a fast learner. As young as kindergarten, she came to realize that adults seemed repulsed by her. Allison found herself denied things that other children received. Juice boxes, pillow cots, and extra minutes of bathroom time. Eyes narrowed when they fell upon her. Hands and bosoms were used for stern purposes rather than comforting ones. An unwavering child disturbs grown people. This was Allison's first lesson in adaptation, and hiding the broken cogs inside her. She began to observe carefully the reactions of other children around her. She learned that a loud voice and a pointed finger meant she should sob. Drawn syllables and voices that spiked high at the end meant she should clap delightedly. When three or more classmates tittered their voices in laughter, so did she. In some sense, Allison has spent every waking moment developing and revising this mimicry. In her most private thoughts, she believes that her intelligence enables her to function without a soul. 
Today is Wednesday. Allison is propped on a stack of hospital pillows with one leg fastened into a steel and velcro matrix of cruel-looking traction apparatus. The splinters of bone formerly protruding through the flesh of her calf have been prodded back into place and fixed with screws and plates. Rods are attached to the screws and the other ends of the rods fit through the bolts of a rigid hammock suspended over her hospital bed. Around the rods, her flesh is punched into seams with hard, tight staples. When the swelling goes down and the stitches heal, the doctors will apply a soft cast that they'll replace every 20 days or after each surgery, whichever comes first. But right now, Allison's right leg is as bad as it will ever be, shaped like knobs of Chinese ginger and covered in big green bruises full of clotted blood. In the next bed over, John is being prepped for transfer to the burn ward. When she knows it's John, because she can see one of his eyebrows through a break in the carapace of stained bandages enveloping his body. Flanking the eyebrow are twin divots where the EMTs have removed the piece of jewelry, shaped like a bent barbell, that he usually wears there. If not for this, the body in the bed might be anyone. It might be any 22-year-old young man with second-degree deep partial thickness burns covering 45% of his body and a morphine drip, keeping him just stoned enough to quit screaming about it. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Today is Wednesday. Allison's childhood passed with only one more episode. A terrible day in her 11th year that began as a wonderful day at the water park. In her yellow swimsuit, Allison was waiting in line for the bathroom when she saw a woman pass by her holding a little boy by the hand. The woman was wearing a floppy hat and using the hand that wasn't occupied by the boy to eat an ice cream bar the kind with the waxy chocolate on the outside. And she was crying. Sobbing, really. Sobbing and pulling on the boy and still eating the ice cream which was falling apart in the midday heat and dripping a trail of white stuff and waxy brown shards behind her. Allison looked at the woman, bewildered, at the way the woman's mouth twisted as she tried to cry and eat, unable to stop doing either and the broken cogs in Allison's head smashed their cracked teeth together, trying to turn, 
feelings boiled up in Allison for the second time in her life. Alien and crooked. A furious feeling, like she was being tricked. And there again was the phantom smell. Sweet and wicked. She had pulled off her bathing suit right there in line and attacked the woman, knocking her to the ground and forcing broken pieces of the wooden ice cream stick over her lips and down her throat while the boy looked on, screaming in a shrill child's voice. Then, desperation overtook her, an urgent need to be somewhere still and quiet and unpeopled. She ran until she could crawl and wedged her small, naked body between the toilet and wall of the bathroom stall like an animal seeking the tight comfort of its burrow, where she fought herself bloody to avoid being touched and tried to exercise the deluge of feelings with screaming sobs so intense they bordered on hysteria. This time, Allison's mother Anne did not take her daughter to the hospital. She told nobody about the episode who had not already witnessed her daughter dragged naked and bloody from the water park men's room. As for the woman with the ice cream, the splintered wood tore two holes the size of raisins in her esophagus, but she declined to press charges after Allison carefully printed some paragraphs of apology into a greeting card, shaped like a flower flanking a pair of sleeping kittens. Having come out of her bad moment, Allison hung her head and bit her lip because she knew those were the fitting motions for shame. But inside, she felt nothing. The final episode, the last of her life, began around 8.30 on a Monday night. Allison was alone in her room when she saw a flash of lime-colored light at the periphery of her vision and then smelled something floral. She sniffed around the room and checked all the electrical sockets, which seemed fine, and by the time she finished doing that, the smell had gone. On Tuesday night, John and Allison went to the theater together, an event Allison logged as their third official date. After the movie, John convinced her to stop off at a restaurant bar at the urging of John's idiot roommate Cleveland Harold, whom everyone called Cleaver and who immediately set to work goading John into matching him with neat shots of Jameson whiskey. The first several shots of liquor soothed the boys' anxieties about the ramifications of taking more shots, and before long, they were clumsy and wild. A discussion about a mutually despised ex-girlfriend of Cleaver somehow became a lusty celebration of Mexican food. But not the Mexican food you get here, that's just shit but real Mexican food, like they ate that night in Tijuana at the place with the chickens and the fence. Allison waved away a third cocktail. She observed how the bartender's eyebrows behaved and passed judgment on people based on their posture. Allison watched a cluster of women exclaim over some photo on a cell phone, noticing that the more attractive the woman, the more at ease her arms seemed to be. Allison relaxed her shoulders. Presently, Cleaver went outside to smoke, and when he did, John pushed his face close to Allison's and lapsed into a glassy-eyed insistathon, telling her she looked beautiful tonight, cooing over her hair and hands and, in a 
outburst of devil-may-care optimism. Her breasts. She considered the pros and cons of sleeping with him and decided against it. She pushed him away when he was too drunk to be offended. She told him to keep his hands to himself, and he laughed. He poked a cigarette between his lips and tried to light it from the wrong end, and Allison didn't help him because she had ceased to feel any responsibility over his feelings. Allison, soberest by far, was ferrying the three of them home in John's blue 1993 Tacoma when the smell came to her again, a thousand times more strongly, and for the first time she was able to associate it with something she'd smelt before. A high, blunt stench like plumbing fluid and gardenia that brought back memories of a sweet-smelling poison her father would pipe through the sprinkler hose to rid their front lawn of mole crickets and fire ants. Black plastic boxes of poison plugged into the necks of sprinkler heads like latched ticks. Allison turned to John, half-lidded, propped between herself and Cleaver. Smell that? Hey... She elbowed him in the lap. Hey, you smell that? I smell nothing, John replied thickly, head bobbling on his neck in agreement with the bouncing of the pickup. Cleaver had got the window seat so he could ash his Marlboro Mild into the rushing night air. This afforded John the middle seat and more chances to insinuate his hand into the crease between Allison's thighs. Mmm... John smiled, eyes fixed on some imaginary drama playing out in soft focus a few inches from his nose. Mmm. Stop. Who's gonna make me, hmm? The sloppy opera of his fingers reached an apex as he thrust his thick fingers into the groove of her jeans, forcefully and without finesse, as one might wrench a bent spoon from a jammed garbage disposal. His other hand slipped between her wranglers and the small of her back, past the seam of her panty, until she could feel his dry unwelcomeness finding entry into her anus. Cleaver heaved in the window seat and dropped his cigarette onto the floor mat, where it sizzled briefly before being extinguished by vomit. Mm, you say you ain't that kind of girl? Well, you're gonna be night. I'm going to make a silver dollar out of a dime with your asshole tonight. Stop it. Allison grabbed John's hand, but before she could throw it back at him, the metallic poison smell intensified, filling the small space of the truck's cab, overwhelming her. If the smell in her dorm room had been a whiff of mole cricket poison dissolved in sprinkler water, this was the feeling of drowning in the stuff of being scalded to death in a poison-flooded burrow. Allison's eyes bulged and she sucked in air. She hacked with all the force of her lungs and let go of the wheel, just for the smallest of seconds, as she pushed all the air out of her in a violent, choking wheeze. And then, a child with no eyes stepped directly into the wash of her headlights, Light flooded into empty sockets, apricot-sized cavities grown over with flesh, perfectly smooth, as if eyes had ever meant to be there. Behind the wheel of the Tacoma, time slowed down, 
Allison felt her palms close around the emergency brake. The child's face whipped in the direction of impact. The eyeless child shrieked, and the sound pierced the night, pricking through Allison's scalp like a blackberry bramble. The insane death cry of the eyeless child with crumbling teeth, who had arrived to rearrange the furniture in her brain. Her face purpled with the force of her coughing, her heart thumped in her throat. For the barest instant before impact, Allison saw that the thing no longer looked like a child, but like an old, old thing. A thing with knotty sockets of stretched skin that locked onto Allison and soul inside her, and filled her chest with a swollen ache that felt like terrible homesickness, with a feeling of sudden descent when a roller coaster drops from its highest peak. Then, the thing was a child again. An awful, awful sound rose from it. A gibbering shriek that went up and up until it split the air like a mordant train whistle. It was the scream of a banshee, and Allison thought, This thing is an evil thing, and it knows my name. The sound of impact was a fleshy clunk, an Easter ham dropped in the sink to defrost. Allison screamed. Her eyes rolled in her head and she swerved into a ditch, where the truck flipped twice before crunching into a thick trunked oak tree. Boughs of moss dangled like ripped snakeskins in the smoke above the wreckage. Cleaver made an <coughs> sound as his skull was crushed between the half-down window and an L-shaped piece of automobile jutting improbably from the passenger side door jam. John's head flapped into the dashboard as if his neck were made of strung taffy, and Allison could not tell if blood or urine was coming out of him, but one or the other was puddling warmly around his armpit and collarbone, mashed as she was into the roof of the cab, which was now the floor of the cab. The keys rattled in the ignition. Leaves and tendrils of detritus swirled around the truck's carcass as it lay crumpled at the foot of the tree, presenting its greasy black belly to the sky, and the tinkle of the shamrock-shaped jingle bell dangling from John's rearview mirror slowed and slowed and stopped. Then, everything was still. The wrecked truck had become part of the nighttime countryside, and so too the three soft, broken bodies inside it. In Allison's final memory of the crash, she opened her eyes and everything was quiet, except for a gentle, metered dripping, and the sound of soft, swamp air rustling through the big tree above. She saw the world upside down through the splintered frame of the driver's side window. A tremendous weight compressed her diaphragm, and her face felt numb and sticky. She tried to lift her head but found it pinned by something. A strange, warm thing that was both hard and soft. She put her hand up and groped, and her fingers identified the shape of an ear connected to a patch of sweaty, bloody buzz cut. 
It was John's head pinning her head. John's body pinning her body. She wet her lips and tried to make words, but all that came out of her mouth was a throaty, sputtering sound. A flash of lime-colored light. The smell of cricket poison. And then, something moved near the corner of her eye. At the edge of her vision, something was creeping out from behind the window's skewed frame. Something silvery and slow-moving. She blinked, and it was closer. Blinked again, and it was inches from her face. A child's head of hair. Soft, corn-silk hair. Allison screamed. Her mouth, when she opened it, filled with blood from her nose and made her choke. Still, she could not stop from screaming as the eyeless child craned its head into the wreckage, leaning in from behind the truck's twisted window frame like a grinning moon, and then unhinged itself to crawl into the wreckage of Allison's mind, which had likewise become unhinged. It knows my name. Today is Wednesday. Cleaver died on impact. Allison knows that now because the doctors have told her. Except they called him Albert Cleveland Harold Strunk. And for a moment she didn't know who they were talking about. She also knows that her airbag likely saved her life even if her face is a swollen, purplish mess, and her upper lip feels as large as a split kielbasa, and she knows that she passed out before the truck caught fire. She knows these things now. But even conscious, they tell her she wouldn't have been able to free herself because of how her right leg was bent up into the center console and jammed in place with the length of her own broken tibia. But even spared that, they continue. The nurses and doctors, she would still have been pinned beneath John's limp weight, which fell draped across her body like a sweaty human duvet. Two hundred and ten pounds of him. A two hundred and ten pound fire blanket. As it turns out, the number of minutes necessary for gasoline combustion flames to consume a body the size of John's is marginally greater than the number of minutes required for a stocky ex-marine named Dave and his brother-in-law Matthew to come upon the scene of a very, very bad car accident and pull the inhabitants to sanctuary. Not enough time to consume the body but more than enough time to make it mauve-colored and weeping and covered with fluid-filled blisters the size of fried eggs. The fire melted the rubber of John's Nikes into the soles of his feet, sparing the fair-haired maiden beneath him. Today is Wednesday. This visit that the nurses are granting Allison is an excursion from intensive recovery room 914, to which her relocation from the operating room is recent enough that she's still stupid with anesthesia. 
The nurses keep reminding Allison that such a visit is very much against hospital rules, as if they've been weakened by her mewling and unending petitions. From how the nurses are behaving, Allison understands that she is expected to thank John. She is expected to demand to thank him for shielding her from the flames and sparing her flesh by the sacrifice of his poor, selfless body. She thinks maybe she is expected to weep over him or to burst out with some display of gratitude or bewilderment or even explode into sudden internal wrath at the injustice of it all. That the nurses are affording her this indulgence now in the freshest aftermath of their shared hell is a fact Allison takes to imply that John is extremely unlikely to survive. The thought does make her feel something in her chest, but it might be a broken rib. Although Allison is 100% certain that John's act of self-sacrifice was more a testament to his blood alcohol level than his belief in martyrdom, Allison's logarithmic judgment tells her to play along. She calls up just enough tears to brighten her eyes. She whispers some nonsense words and reaches through the bed rail, but isn't permitted to touch him because the risk of infection is terribly high when you're missing most of your skin. Allison sits with him, doing these things until John's breath quickens beneath the bandages, and he begins to whimper, at which point the nurses separate the two beds in order to calm John with another jolt of morphine. As a pair of candy stripers wheel Allison back to intensive recovery room 914, a nurse follows behind, fiddling with the IV bag and encouraging her to consider the compound fracture of her right leg a lucky break. Allison manages a weak chuckle, but only in her mind. In the burn ward, nobody appreciates the pun. Today is Wednesday. There is an article in the paper about the accident. The nurse brings Allison a copy and holds it up so she can see the headline through her crusty, slit-swollen eyes. There is a black-and-white picture of Cleaver. It's a yearbook photo, five years younger, and his hair is shaped into crunchy, comma-shaped spikes that have been bleached at the tips. The spot reads... Students in Deadly Collision, and smaller letters underneath, 22-year-old hero shields girl from flames. Condition remains critical. In a color photo, Dave, the stocky marine, is standing next to the charbroiled Tacoma, its black burnt remains crusty with leftover oxygen-eating foam. Dave is smiling, one boot planted in the burnt Tacoma. He looks like a hunter standing over his kill. He is smiling, and Allison can see wet, spade-shaped teeth that make her think of cantaloupe seeds. In Allison's dreamscape, the measure of instants that make up minutes and hours has no foreseeable significance. For a long while, she has tethered herself to reality with a long, thin string. Now, her mind is wandering... She dreams of the child, its moon-shaped face, and an eyeless horror that comes towards her out of the dark, smiling, plucking apart knots 
with long, thin fingers. The eyeless thing never leaves her. Sometimes it sits in her lap, playing with her hair and sucking on the external fixation pins that jut from puffy openings in her calf. But most often the thing has taken to tucking itself into a corner of the ceiling, like a blind house spider. It grins and whispers things as she swallows her antibiotics and scrapes up green spoonfuls of Cisco gelatin dessert and lets the beeping of the various monitors lull her into blissful morphine doses. The things says things that don't make sense to Allison, but making sense of things isn't on her priority list right now, and she doesn't think about it much. They must understand that you've purchased this township fair and square, is one thing that it whispers. It also says things like, Jemima used to love corn on the cob, and to incapacitate a witch, you must impale it by the cunt. Even though Allison has never known any witches or anyone named Jemima except the black lady with the bouffon on the squeezable bottle of pancake syrup, sometimes the eyeless thing sings soft, sweet songs about animals going to heaven. And sometimes it talks about John. When the burns dry up, he'll come for you, it whispers. The face of the thing still looks like a child, but the body is bloated and scaly, and the arms and legs have begun to look like the legs of a spider or a wasp. He will crawl in here when you're sleeping, and he will steal your skin. He will drag the rest of you to hell with him. After the hero story runs in the paper, the nurses start reading Allison's letters from well-wishers and congratulators that are arriving for John. There are hallmark cards with sappy religious poems, often passed around offices and classrooms, signed with a chaos of different names and inks. Arts and craft sympathies from Girl Scouts and relatives in second grade Sunday school classes. Allison's mother arrives at some point while Allison is dozing, and when she wakes up, she's there, at the side of the bed. She presses her lips together a lot, and her eyes never stop being pink and glassy with tears. When she speaks, she can't keep her voice from cracking. She keeps wanting to hold Allison's hand. By the fifth day, Allison does not want to hold anyone's hand. She just wants to sleep. The doctors have removed her from the morphine drip, and now sleep is the only release from the deep, rotten ache biting into her bones. But she can't sleep. Not really. She can only get as far as dozing, and then she gets stuck in between dreaming and waking but there isn't much pain in the in-between, so Allison doesn't mind staying there. She learns the sound of her own heartbeat and likes the way the sheets ruffle the hairs on her arms. She listens to the cogs turning inside her. She fades into a painless place that only looks like her hospital room. 
The eyeless thing sits on her pillow and picks at her hair and strokes her eyebrows gently. It makes a singing sound in its throat, like a wet nurse humming a baby to sleep. Some days pass. Allison feels well enough to watch television and eat one of the hamburgers her mother brings, but the meat tastes spongy and strange, and she spits it out. She asks the right questions and smiles at the right times, and at night she has terrible, sweating nightmares in which she knows she needs to find her way to the burn ward. But her leg is bolted to the traction beam with screws bored into her bones. Allison wakes from these dreams, panicky and physiologically agitated, and it takes time for her to relax and sleep again. She's not alone. Her eyeless visitor watches from its hidey hole in the corner of the ceiling, telling her things about centipedes and the A-bomb, and things about John. Eventually, Allison notices that the thing doesn't speak words any longer, only sounds. Laughing and squishing sounds. In the dimmest corner of intensive care room 914, Allison can see the thing grinning and pulsing. She can see that it's begun to spin a cocoon around itself. It is her birthday. Nurses and her mother and several members of her mother's church are gathered around her bed, but she cannot tell their faces apart, and she cannot hear the singing because the noises from the thing cocooned in the corner have grown deafening. She sees a foil balloon with a honeybee and a cake with blue icing, and on top of the cake there are candles whose tips are light with the most beautiful, sensuous, godly fire. Allison looks into the fire and two things happen at once. She is gripped by the most powerful orgasm of her life, and the thing in the corner screams. A single word, so loudly that she will be effectively deafened forever. The word is burn. The nurses are reluctant to allow Allison another visit to John's room, as his morning debridement has been a difficult one, and the pain is overcoming him to the point where drugs merely bring the unholy pain ripping through his skinless nerves, from a scream to a conversational tone. An indoor voice, as Allison's aunts and teachers would say. But in the end, they agree to wheel her briefly to John's bedside persuaded perhaps by her meaningless tears, and perhaps by a sense of emotion, a thing that Allison is no longer capable of comprehending. The matches the nurses use to light her birthday candles are pushed into the rim of her cast, the strike strip irritating the splotchy skin that has grown prickly with newborn hairs. The child thing sits at the foot of her hospital bed, smiling at her with its mouth full of teeth. Hundreds of teeth. Its bones and its face have gone. 
The oxygen tank ignites immediately, showering John with sparks the color of fireflies in the moonlight, and the redder, richer flames as the bandages and ointments catch fire. Allison cannot hear screaming. She cannot hear the crack of bone as her leg breaks apart for the second time as she drags herself into John's bed and covers his raw body with her own. She smells cricket poison. She feels flames splash across her body. And, at first, they feel cold. Icy cold, like falling onto your palms while ice skating. She would like to die before the hurting begins. She asks the child beside her if it can help her with this. And the child says yes. And then... A wash of darkness spreads before her eyes, edging out the light of the world like softly melting snow. Allison has lived to be 19 years old. Up until the very end, Allison never considers that anyone else's mind might not be exactly like hers. Allison was written by and brought to you courtesy of Saros Nikita. Saros is a writer of horror and science fiction short stories and novels, many of which are set in the American South. Her writing combines all the best and most gruesome elements of folk and body horror, which is why she always has a place on the horror hill. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, Please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill, for yet another dance with darkness. I bet you good night. Sleep tight, listener. And whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in.
You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill, unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's logo was created by Craig Groshek, and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more, and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening, and sweet dreams. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.